Hey all, if you like the Story Collider podcast, another show you might enjoy is Flash Forward, produced by our own Rose Evelith. Flash Forward is a show about possible tomorrows. Every week, Rose takes you on a trip to a possible or not so possible future. Every episode starts with a little radio drama from the future before they head back to today to talk to experts about what that future would really be like. So far, she's tackled everything from the existence of artificial wombs to what would happen if space pirates dragged a second moon to Earth. The second season of the show just launched with an episode about what would happen if the whole world went face blind. You can find that episode and the rest at flashforwardpod.com. That's flashforwardpod.com or on whatever podcasting app you like best. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Rachel Fairbank. It was recorded in October 2015 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as part of the Science Writers 2015 meeting. In my second year of a PhD program in developmental biology, I was hit by a car walking to school. It was 7.30 in the morning. I was crossing an intersection with a group of other pedestrians when, halfway across the street, we paused for a moment on the median. I looked to my left. There was a light brown hood of a car about a yard away. I stared at the car. Why was there a car on the median? The information traced scattered pathways through my brain. Car median, me. My brain had exactly enough time to process what was happening, that the car was still moving and that I was directly in its path, but not enough time to react. The car hit me and the world went black. I woke up on the pavement, covered in blood and shattered glass. I was rushed to the nearest trauma center, where I spent the morning in surgery and CAT scans and x-rays. After the rush of the morning died down, a nurse came to my side to ask if I would enroll in a study for patients with traumatic brain injuries. I know all about brain injuries. As a graduate student, I had traced the genetic pathways that direct neural development and had conversations with colleagues in the dry technical language of academia about ischemia-induced traumatic brain injuries. I worked in a lab that studied blood vessel growth and remodeling. For me, that meant studying how blood vessels grow and remodel in the eye during development. But for my lab mates, that meant studying how blood vessels grow and remodel after brain injuries. And so when the nurse told me that I had sustained a traumatic brain injury, the first image to flash through my mind was an image produced by a lab mate, that of a withered, ragged mouse brain. Well, I have long-term cognitive impairment, I asked the nurse. My words were slurred from the morphine, and I struggled to put the sentence together. But I wanted her to know that even though I was a research subject for this study, I was still a scientist. 
The researchers wanted to understand how a young brain, in my case 25 years old, heals from a traumatic injury. And to do that, they wanted two MRI images of my brain. The first one taken within 96 hours of the accident. The second one three months later. They also wanted to do cognitive testing so that they could correlate the physical information from the MRI with information about how well my brain was functioning. Exactly 96 hours after the accident, I had my first MRI. I was worried about the timing, as though a single hour, 97 hours, not 96, could destroy the entire study. The first round of tests went by on a blurry haze. The MRI machine made a loud whirring, clanking sound. I fell asleep anyway. During the tests, my memory kept shifting in and out of focus. There was a nagging sense of pain that even the hospital morphine had been unable to erase. The transition to Vicodin, which seemed to me a very sorry excuse for a painkiller, <laughs> was leaving me cranky and exhausted. A couple of weeks later, I received the data from the MRI in the mail, along with a letter that explained the results. Under the section findings was a dizzying wall of text. Phrases such as minimal gliosis or demyelination and susceptibility foci popped out at me. As a scientist, I knew enough to worry, but I didn't know enough to comprehend the language. My brain latched onto a particular phrase. There are three tiny punctate flare slash T2 hyperintense foci in the subcortical white matter. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. But I just couldn't shake those images of damaged mouse brains. And so I worried and I worried and I worried. And in between the worrying, I slept a lot and I took my pain meds. And then I worried some more. <laughs> After a few weeks of this worrying, I finally gathered the courage to call the scientist in charge of the study. I asked her about that phrase. There are three tiny punctate flare slash T2 hyperintense foci in the subcortical white matter. <laughs> what did that mean? <laughs> she told me that those punctate flares were usually the result of damage sustained during childbirth or during early childhood, and that they had nothing to do with my accident. Whatever that damage had been, it healed a long time ago. <laughs> I think my mother dropped me on my head when I was a kid. <laughs> her words were detached, scientific. I wanted to speak to her as one scientist to another, to ask if there were any additional variables that hadn't shown up in the MRI, but that could affect my brain later down the road. But I couldn't. I was still far too emotional to speak as a scientist. Several months went by. I still panicked every time I saw a car. I just couldn't get that image of the light brown hood out of my head. But the bruises were gone and the lacerations had healed. I looked normal again. I went in for my yearly eye exam. After a never-ending stream of accident-related doctor's appointments, I was looking forward to the luxury of a routine exam, nothing out of the ordinary. And the appointment started off well. <laughs> For the first time in years, my vision had not gotten worse. <laughs> I was almost blind, so that was really good news. Then a technician dilated my eyes, and the doctor took a look. You have scarring on your left retina, he told me. 
Have you broken any bones or had any head trauma? <laughs> Oops. Well, yes. <laughs> and once again, I had to explain about the accident. This was a familiar process by now, although it still wasn't easy. My body shook and my voice wavered every time I described what happened. The technicians took photos of my retina. I asked for copies of the photos so that I could compare the images of my retina with the images of the mouse retinas I was so familiar with. <laughs> there was a light circle marking the optic nerve and the smaller, slightly darker circle marking the fovea. On the left retina, close to the fovea, was a snarled tangle of broken blood vessels. The doctor, concerned that the damage might spread, referred me to a retinal specialist. Now, as a scientist, when confronted with a problem, my first instinct is to retreat to my journal articles. In this case, I didn't have to go far. My thesis project was on the developing vasculature of the embryonic eye. <laughs> I was very, very familiar with the blood vessels of the retina. And so all I had to do for research was head to the stacks of paper, background research for my upcoming qualifying exam, piled high on my desk. All of the journal articles began with general statements about the importance of a stable retinal vasculature and all the terrible disorders that results when it isn't. <laughs> and so I wondered, was I going to become the rationale for my own research? I went to the retinal specialist. He dilated my eyes and took a look. Then a nurse took me to a small dark room with several microscopes. As the nurse injected my veins with a syringe full of a bright yellow fluid and pointed me towards the microscope, I realized that I knew what test she was performing. This was a test that my lab mates performed all the time on their mice, and this was a test that I was expected to learn soon in order to perform on my own mice. We call this a dextran fill. The nurse was injecting my veins with a fluorescent dye so that she could observe the dye as it filled up the blood vessels of the retina. If the dye filled up the vessels of the retina and remained contained, then the vessels were stable. If the dye didn't distribute evenly, or if it leaked out into the surrounding space, then the vessels were damaged. This was a test that would determine whether I was the rationale for my research or its scientist. A long, quiet moment passed. The dye flushed its way through my veins, onto my heart, and onto the rest of my body, finally reaching the vessels of my retina. The dye remained contained. I breathed out, relieved. I wanted to tell a nurse all about my own research, about how during development the Retinal vessels grow in at the same time that the hyaloid vessels, which surround the lens, are regressing. I wanted to tell her about how this would be a test I would be performing on my own mice, about what I hoped to discover, but I couldn't. I was still the patient, not the scientist. About an hour after the test, I started feeling sick. I felt the way that you feel just before catching a cold. Throat felt tight, my limbs felt wobbly. For all my familiarity with this technique, I never once stopped to consider the idea that the dye is a foreign agent invading the body. Was this what it would feel like for my own lab mice? 
Later that day, down in the mouse colony, I pulled out my cages of lab mice. I thought about that moment when the dye was working its way through my body. I thought about those images of my brain and those images of damaged mouse brains. I placed the cages of lab mice on the table and I looked at them. As they looked back at me, I could feel the space between us shrink. Thank you. That was Rachel Fairbank. Rachel reserved her bachelor's in biology from Cornell University, did some graduate work in the developmental biology program at Baylor College of Medicine, and is currently working on an MFA in creative writing at the University of Houston, where she also works as a science writer. In her spare time, she likes to box. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. In digital from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio, the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Obron for hosting the show, to Wade Roosh and everyone at the NASW and CASW for amazing help, and to the vacation I'm about to take. Thanks for listening. <laughs>